Welcome to Webinaki Windows. I'm your host, Donald Loring. Webinaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Webinaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. Today, we'll be continuing our series on unpacking sovereignty. This is our third show, and we will be winding up our discussion on George Washington and moving towards the creation of Maine statehood. We continue our conversation with the two highly respected authors and historians who specialize in history as it pertains to native people, uh, Professor Colin Calloway of Dartmouth and Hale Prince of Kansas State University. Uh, welcome back, Professors Calloway and Prince. So I thought we would start out by a little recap of, uh, of Washington and his perspective on uh, sovereignty and the Indian nation. So uh, Colin, if you would talk about that. Yes, thank you, Donna. It's good to be back. George Washington, of course, is first president and not somebody whom we, we normally uh, associate a lot with Native American history. Um, but in many ways, he's, he's fundamentally important because as first president, he has the opportunity to set, and the responsibility, I suppose, to set precedent for the new nation's Indian policies. And when the colonies win their independence, they really don't have much else except that independence. They don't even have the unity and the, or the united desire to become a United States. And they certainly lack resources. So part of what the revolution had been about was getting access to land. That was the, the major resource of the continent. One of the issues that prompted people like George Washington to separate from the, the British Empire was that the empire tried to prevent them getting access to Indian land in the hopes of maintaining peace and uh, uh, an orderly uh, frontier. So in 1783, the United States and Great Britain signed the Treaty of Paris and in the revolution. Britain recognizes the independence of the 13 former uh, colonies, the United States, and it transfers to the United States all its territories, by which I mean all its claims to territories, south of the Great Lakes, east of Mississippi, north of Florida. This is Indian country, certainly west of the Appalachian Mountains. Washington and the founding fathers realized that this was key to building a nation. Not only would the new United States be stifled if it was confined east of the Appalachian Mountains, but the lands to the west were a potential source of income, of revenue, for building the infrastructure of the nation, setting up a post office, building roads, establishing an army, etc., etc. To do that, of course, that land, which was Native American homelands, 
had to be transformed into American real estate, that is private property. That was not a straightforward process as, as, as one might think. How were you to do that? Well, you could try and take that land by force. The Americans, uh, I suppose, tried to do that on a number of occasions. And in November 1791, one of those attempts resulted in the Northwest Confederacy of Indian Nations in the Ohio country, destroying the American army, destroying the only army that the American, that the United States had at the time. A better way to do this was through treaties, through purchasing land from Indian people. And that was the policy, the practice that the British and other colonial powers pursued. And it was the preferred method uh, for George Washington and Henry Knox. What I've been kind of wanting to dig into just a little bit more was you mentioned the 1791 when the, uh, say the Iroquois? It's the Northwest Confederacy. It's Shawnees, Delawares, Miamis, all these tribes had created a confederation to resist the expansion of the American Confederation. And they, that confederation basically destroyed the American army? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what year was that again? That was November 4th, 1791. And uh, it was a a huge event. Thomas Jefferson said when the news reached Washington, uh, reached Philadelphia, I'm sorry, nobody talked about anything else. We've kind of forgotten it, but at the time, this was a major blow, it was a major victory for Indian people, the biggest ever, but it was also a major blow to the United States, which of course was still an embryonic nation. And now it's left defenseless against not only still powerful Indian nations, but also the British in Canada, the Spaniards in the, in the South and, um, and Southwest. That was why they thought, well, they actually didn't, didn't have an, much of an army left, right? So, and probably yeah. lots of debt as well. Yeah. And one of the, you know, a number of the people who were involved in that, this was a defeat that it actually prompted the first congressional investigation in American history. Um, and what they did was, <clears throat> of course, you have to explain this. How could the Americans have been defeated by the Indians? Well, one of the things they found pretty quickly was contract of fraud. Uh, apparently, it's not as new as we think. Um, That's familiar. And, yeah, and yeah. people like Henry Knox were implicated. Um, so this was this was something that uh, really permeated American society. But this was Washington's preferred policy was not to, go, and Henry Knox too, even though Henry Knox was Secretary of War, was not to go to war with Indian people. It was risky. It was expensive, and it didn't look good. If you could acquire land by purchasing land through, tr- through the treaty process, that looked as if the United States was dealing fairly and honorably with Indian people. But they also wanted to uh, make the process of acquiring Indian land as orderly and systematic as they could. And so they dealt, worked with land companies, uh, uh, prominent 
uh, members, if you like, of, of, of the elite society as a way of obtaining land. So Congress would give land grants to companies, to individuals, and the idea was that those people would then attract settlers uh, to occupy that land and they would establish towns, etc. So not for the first, not for the last time, I should say, in American history, those people who could identify the extension of their own fortunes with the extension, with the expansion of national interests, did well, uh, like um, you know, railroad companies in the 19th century, oil companies in the 20th century, in the 18th century, it was land companies and people who were engaged in land speculation. And when we look back at it, it we can often think of that as uh, being something that was a conflict of in interest, being carried out by, by people of less than honorable motives, but everybody was doing this. Land was the basis and the route to fortune in 18th century America. George Washington was interested in getting Indian land from time he was a teenager till his death. Um, Henry Knox and what, was got, what went on in Maine, that was uh, part of a, a larger national project of building a new nation on Indian land. And in that process, there was not only, if you like, a domestic empire to be built for the United States, but also fortunes to be made for those who were um, aiding and abetting in the process. So these, uh, the, the land out west, that was the way they were looking for to, to build a nation. Mm -hmm. And there was a uh, sort of like a, uh, a plan how to do that. Yeah. In, um, even before Washington became uh, president, it was one of the last acts of the uh, Confederation Congress in 1787. Um, Congress had, had passed um, the Northwest Ordinance and the Northwest referred to that territory north and west of the Ohio River. What today is Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin and Minnesota. That was land that the federal government claimed as, as public land. And what it wanted to do was set in process a system by which those lands could become, first of all, territories and then states. So one of the questions that um, the founding generation, if we call them that, faced was, how are we gonna prevent our citizens doing to us what we just did to the British? And by that, I mean, they justified revolution rebellion and securing independence from Britain as, um, as a natural course of events. They said the colonies were children to the mother country. Like children, they grew up. And once they grew up, they no longer need the parent. They are stronger, they are independent, they can go off and do their own thing. That's what we did. Well, that's okay. But then what happens if 
now independent Americans go out and settle in somewhere like Wisconsin. And over time, develop that same strength and those same attitudes and say, okay, we no longer need to be part of the United States. We'll establish our own country. If that happened, you would not have a nation. You would just have a series of, of republics and that was to be avoided. So the Northwest Ordinance set up what became known as the territorial system. And basically it said, a territory of the United States, once it had a population of 5,000 people, could set up a government with similar to that of the states. You'd have a governor, you'd have a legislator, et cetera, et cetera. Once it reached 60,000 people, the territory could petition to be admitted to the United States on an equal footing with all the other states. That meant that unlike in the British Empire where you were once a colony, always a colony, in the United States, territorial status was temporary and states would eventually, and ter territories would eventually become states. And what that did was therefore lay out the kind of agenda, not only for American people to move west and settle new territories, but to ensure that those territories, once settled, then became part of the American body politic. They became states like everybody else. And that pretty much effectively was how most of the United States uh, developed. But of course, part of that involves always getting the land on which these settlements are to take place. And that same Northwest Ordinance that laid out that system, which is a blueprint for national expansion across Indian land, also said, we will always deal fairly and honorably with Indian people and never invade their countries except in just and lawful wars authorized by Congress. So the way to satisfy that element of the, of the plan was to get Indian lands by treaties rather than by invading them. And if you did have to invade them, then you made sure that your uh, war was just and lawful and authorized by Congress. Um, so there's a number of things going on here that, that Washington and Knox, as the Secretary of War, are wrestling with and trying to reconcile. Ultimately, of course, the contradictory provisions in the Northwest Ordinance are fundamentally irreconcilable. You really can't take people's land from them, dispossess them, and deal fairly and honorably with them. But that was Washington's dilemma, and in many ways, I suppose that's been America's dilemma. What really happens here, and I, in the overall lesson that that I'm getting, I guess, is is that um, the nation-building plan was to take all the land they could get, particularly they were looking out west, and native people, native tribes were on that land, and that if the tribes, if native people, or even as you mentioned in, in a previous show, some squatters even, uh, those any people who were in their way 
were basically just to be uh, run over and uh, taken care of one way or the other because the building of the nation, as they saw it, was, was the most important thing for them to accomplish. It was, it was their goal. Is that true the way you see it or is there? Yes, it's, um, I mean, I think one of the things that, I mean, the bottom line, yes, of course. Uh, there's no question that Indian people must, and in the eyes of Washington and Knox, should give up their land. But um, bring us back to the question of sovereignty. If you think about it, treaties by their definition are agreements between sovereign nations. And so by attempting to get Indian land through the treaty process, the United States, in a sense, recognizes Indians, Indian tribes, if you like, as sovereign nations. And they actually, Washington and Knox both actually say that in as many words. The process of acquiring Indian land also involves diminishing that sovereignty because the, the United States, like European nations beforehand, had regarded Indian people, had, had recognized that Indian people, indigenous peoples occupied the land, but they had not credited them with owning the land in the same way that Europeans did. And so when Europeans powers handed territory back and forth like the, the British handed to the Americans in 1783, they hand that territory over and with it they hand rights of preemption and what that means is they give to the United States or the French give to the British the right to if you like have the right to purchase Indian land implicitly it means that Indian people who occupy that land don't have the right to sell that land to somebody else right? so when the United States establishes treaties with Indian people that those, that those are agreements between sovereigns. But the United States view of Indian people is that they're not as sovereign as we are because they can't sell their land to, to Spain or to Russia. They can only sell it to us. And so that their occupation of that land in that sense is, is temporary. They will occupy that land until such time as we need it. And so it's almost as if they're regarding indigenous people living on their own homelands as tenants rather than property owners. And for somebody like Washington, property is, is, is sacrosanct. May I interject here a quick um, comment? Because um, we talk about concepts like sovereignty, which is really the theme of uh, your interviews. Um, and uh, the unwrapping uh, of sovereignty is, as you are finding out, very complicated. And we really have when we speak about Europeans, and we talked about it the last time, uh, you have really a large number of different peoples, each with very different languages, where these concepts are not easily translated even into their own home languages. So um, I may be in the Netherlands and trying to explain back home uh, the concept of sovereignty, and I will have there almost as much as difficulty as I might have when I teach in Kansas uh, or in Maine. And so that's one thing. The other thing is that we, 
there's a notion that we refer to as a reification. We begin to attribute uh, a reality to something that's really a thought, a, a concept. And then we make it into a thing and subsequently begin to treat it as a thing. And then it bounces back to us because we are beholden by the thing that we ourselves have created. And what I mean with this is that sovereignty is really a whole fluctuating scale. We talked about it earlier with many different um, um, attributes, if you will, of full sovereignty to more limited sovereignty to the concept of an inherent sovereignty, which is not derived by international treaty, but that's derived from ancestral natural rights. And so you have a whole scale of um, concepts that we all subsume under the heading sovereignty. But when you begin to parse it, realize it's a monstrosity of multiple different um, components, uh, features, behaviors, if you will. And it holds us, holds us in a kind of an, a, a thrall whereby we begin to think, oh, this is sovereignty and therefore I can or I cannot do certain things. Whereas then you get a lawsuit, for example, and you begin to put it into dispute. And then you see an army of lawyers on the one side and an army of lawyers on the other side begin to debate, how does that concept specifically pertain to this and this particular issue? And so the reason I mentioned this is, um, and Colin knows this, of course, because we are wrestling with realities on the ground. Then we have a description, sometimes by an American official or a British official or an historian subsequently. And they put a gloss on things. They put things of great complexity in words. These words are recorded, translated, and then they begin to talk back to us, but they have undergone a transformation. And that's when you wrestle with these treaty documents, for example, they are phrased by usually by lawyers, either in Boston or later in Augusta or in Washington, wherever these treaties are being concocted. And they are put into words, but these words are first of all, a choice between A, B, C as an alternative, but then later, 200 years later, for example, we are not entirely sure about the value and the extent to which these words pertain to which kind of reality. So it becomes a real hard thing to argue, if you will, about, we talked about land. Um, at what point does land, ancestral homeland for hunting peoples, how does it transform into, for example, real estate? Because you cannot just sell land. You first have to do a legal transformation of a certain amount of land measured by X and Y inches, centimeters, meters, miles, then you put a legal concept on it called real estate. And once that real estate, and the word says it, the real, right, is the rest from, in Latin, it's the thing. So you have turned that estate into a thing that can then become a commodity to be changed, uh, to be exchanged. And the same thing, even with the notion of estate, as in real estate, even that term, there's nothing inherent in that land that makes it an estate. It's only the status of the owner that turns that tract of land into an estate. So you see that with the famous uh, uh, treatment on uh, Machiavelli, right? It's the status of the prince that determines the rights of that particular political entity called the state. So we have a huge 
shift of language translations. So it's very difficult, even for the best translator, such as uh, at the Treaty of Dreamville, for example, that uh, Colin earlier was alluding to, to translate these concepts into Delaware or in Huron or in Penobscot, for the matter. It's extremely difficult even today. So what was actually going on was, of course, I'm, I'm I'm, what I'm seeing though is sovereignty was used as a tool sort of to take control and power over the land base and to build a nation uh, to, and to keep control. And I think that was, that was the plan for the nation building is maybe to, to utilize all the tools they could do, could use. And uh, I think sovereignty came out as nowadays, maybe not back then, I don't know. But, it's, but sovereignty to the tribes has become really important uh, in the past few years. Well, I think, Donna, I mean, to echo what, what Al was saying, the new nation looking at its land, it's, it's a complicated situation in which the new nation is still creating itself and even creating its sense of itself at the same time as it is expanding onto native land. So when we talk about sovereignty, and Hal alluded to this, there are multiple sovereignties. There's not only the sovereignty of the United States, but there's also the sovereignty of the different states. And some of those states are trying to protect their sovereignty from the power of the federal government. So you have national sovereignty, state sovereignty, and tribal sovereignty. And that was in play then. And of course, that's still the situation now where we have 574 federally recognized tribes in the United States. And given the complexities that Hal outlined, how do you work all that out? All those competing sovereignties and different kinds of sovereignties, the sovereignty of the United States, the sovereignty of the 50 states, and the sovereignties of the, uh, of, of the tribes. It, it's an extremely complicated, Thing. But yes, I mean, in terms of nation building, sovereignty is key and the United States needed to exercise and assert its sovereignty, not only vis-a-vis uh, -vis Indian peoples whose land it was taking, but also against states, some of whom wanted to be the wanted to be the entities taking Indian land, not the federal government. So it's a complicated set of tussles right from the start. So Harold, you, uh, you talk about how the, uh, the banks and the merchants and how they actually sort of lent all kinds of funding and stuff to uh, these, these land companies and to like people like uh, Henry Knox and all over the world. I mean, they were very, these companies were very powerful. Um, because they were lending money uh, for all these land grabs and, and Maine sort of saw that uh, influence. Uh, if you wanna just pick up on that Harold. Well, it's um, coming back uh, and I link uh, bankers to um, uh, conquest. Um, for every conquest you need Armies, armies need to be um, uh, weaponized. Men need to be purchasing uh, 
uh, not only weapons, but also clothing, food. And that's one way, of course, in which uh, Henry Knox uh, was making some of his money uh, during the Revolutionary War. It didn't make him rich, but it made him minimally. Uh, was, uh, he, he knew how to put things together. He had an entrepreneurial spirit. So these bankers um, that are um, indebting the American nation when it begins to assert its independence, uh, that was borrowed capital. That was capital that came out of Europe um, out of savings uh, by multiple families um, who put their surplus capital into the hands of a bank with the guarantee of interest. And a typical interest-bearing account at these banks in uh, Europe, uh, both in London, but also Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Paris, uh, and many other places, uh, the typical return on the money was uh, 3%. So if you have a low inflation, let's say of half percent or 0% or 1%, then you get a 3% return of an annual interest. That's a way in which um, that capital can be made to work for you. So a number of these entrepreneurs who had a large amount of money already began to form these banks. That's why the term bank exists, right? It's if you bank that money at a merchant house whereby the merchant who gathers that capital from these multiple uh, individuals and puts that together and puts that out into a loan, depending on the risk of the person who gets the loan of out to five, six, seven, sometimes 9%. And the differential, of course, the higher the, the, the interest charge, the greater the risk usually of the person who gets the loan. So if you now think about that nation building um, as Colin knows, because I'm again referring to a Scott, uh, but Adam Smith is, of course, um, one of the great first thinkers about capitalism as we know it. And so there was a book published, uh, The Wealth of Nations, which came out at the same time as uh, the Declaration of American Independence. Um, the fourth edition of that book, which was an extremely important book, and how do, does the economy of a polity, a, whether it's called the state or something else, how do they get the revenue to build roads or an improve a port or whatever? So that means through taxation. Through taxation, you only can get that if you have your finger on the pulse in terms of what goes in and what goes out in terms of import and export. So the wealth of nation um, uh, uh, was the formation of the modern state as we now know it, uh, that as it emerged in the course of the 18th century, uh, in the early 19th century, and the system that underpinned it uh, got the name of capitalism because the notion of capital as managed by capitalists, which were the bankers, that was a term that simply referred to all, anyone who dealt with money was simply referred to or could be called a capitalist. But these people were dealing with capital and that surplus capital that was used to finance certain operations, one of which we talked about earlier about um, the, uh, the small army that the United States had, in order to expand that army, you need to feed a lot of people and equipment, equipment plus a lot of money. So the American states, Massachusetts, Virginia, New York, but also the collectivity were deeply in debt to these bankers in Europe, in particular in Paris, Amsterdam, but ironically also in London through some strange transatlantic, uh, sorry, trans-North Sea of operations between Amsterdam and, and London, very obscure how the money exactly flowed. Um, uh, and that's, you know, that happened, uh, it's too, too complicated to get into it. 
But the key thing is that the um, same principle when land was turned into real estate, that is worthless land if you can't sell it, number one. And number two, if you can't have a bridge over a river, for example, or a road that costs money. So people like Henry Knox were land rich, but cash poor. And therefore that land that they owned in quotation marks, they couldn't do anything with it. They needed capital to invest in that land in order to attract uh, settlers or uh, purchasers. And so here you get these kind of um, devilish deals, if you will, between these um, ambitious American entrepreneurs who saw that wealth of land out there that they could to turn A into real estate, B, commodify it, turn it into a commodity to be traded, and then harvest the capital as a result of the sale. But in order to do that, you needed the money. The only people who really had any money at the time, because after the American Revolution, there wasn't a lot of cash going around in this country. They turned to these bankers in Amsterdam and in, and, and in London. Um, Francis Baring, which is the founder of the Baring Brothers that went bankrupt uh, about uh, 50 years ago. And then you had the House of Hope uh, in, um, in Amsterdam. And the House of Hope uh, by, uh, by John Hope, that was an extremely powerful bank that even financed Catherine the Great in the Turkish-Russian war of the expansion of the Russian empire toward the Crimean Sea. Uh, so these people had all that money out there. They knew how to make money for all the investors and they were searching for outlets. And that's how Henry Knox and uh, William During from uh, who had worked um, uh, in the treasury department originally, they made a kind of a deal to purchase land from the state of Massachusetts in Maine. And that, that was a huge amount of uh, land. We're talking about 2 million acres and they were even speculating about more than the 2 million acres. But what happened in that, and this is all getting a little bit complicated, but um, the, uh, the loan that they had they had interest payments due. And so on the one hand, they had interest payments due in cash back to the person who had given you the capital, number one. Number two, the speculation was based that the land would increase in value. The problem was that Colin was referring here to the Northwest Territories, to the land uh, in Ohio and beyond. The market got flooded with so much land that you got an inflation in land value. So what looked like a good deal in, let's say, 1785 or 1786 by purchasing land for a certain kind of price was not looking that good in 1792 or 1793 when a massive amount of new land came in that depressed the value, whereas you had made the loan of a certain kind of value, the interest of which was due back to the banker. So that got um, uh, William During into trouble. He ended up in a, a, a debtor jail, but also Henry Knox. So Henry Knox, who is there as the Secretary of War, is dealing with his massive land speculations in Maine, while he's at the same time negotiating uh, with the Non-Intercourse Act, all these kind of things on behalf of the federal government, but has his hands deep into trouble with the Waldo patent, and beyond it, east of the Penobscot River, in a land speculation deal of 1 million acres and another land speculation deal here up to Kennebec, where I live here, um, just north uh, and adjoining the um, Plymouth Company or the Kennebec proprietors 
territory as well. So this Maine was an extraordinarily rotten situation in terms of how right after independence, how this state or at that time province of the, of the state of Massachusetts, how it was dealing not only with native peoples, but also all these inhabitants who were out here because these usually immensely powerful guys, almost all, yeah, all men pretty much in Boston and surroundings, they were holding a strangle, a stranglehold on the economy of Maine. And it was absolutely ruthless in the way they operated because they hired the sheriffs who were then hired to impose the rules that they themselves had concocted by sitting also in the legislature in Boston and being in charge of the militia because almost all of these people were also militia officers. So if you really wanna see a complete farce in my way, in my way of thinking about how Americans are being taught about the founding of the American Republic and to read the lofty rhetoric by people like Thomas Jefferson, that's one thing. But you come on the ground, in particular in a place like Maine, and so a lot of very uncouth, hard, tough, uh, ruthless negotiations where a lot of the small people get squeezed out. And among these small people are the indigenous peoples who are defenseless, A, because they have, have been reduced in genocidal wars, there's not many people are left, and they're reduced to starvation because the fur market collapsed, and they're choked off by places like Fort Pownall that controls the corridor from the Penobscot River to Penobscot Bay. Same thing happened here on the, on the Kennebec. So it's, it's a travesty. I have always said, as you know, I've been here uh, active in Maine since the early 1980s. I worked in Argentina before, but my eyes have never been blinded uh, to the way that many Americans have been blinded about what this history supposedly is about, because I started working for the Mi'kmaq Indians in Northern Maine, and I got a whole different perspective, not just as a Dutchman, but uh, working for 10 years for an Indian tribe that was landless, had no rights, and was in a situation where people didn't even realize they existed, which was the travesty. And so I was thinking, how is this possible that you have an indigenous people in Maine, in a situation that reminded me of Paraguay, where I had been working before in Argentina, and it made me really angry. And it made me angry, not just because of the injustice, but because of the blinders that had been put on people from generation to generation by school teachers, by writers, and by all kinds of other people who have their no, a, a concept of what happened that's so at odds with the reality. And that's when you get into court cases, uh, as, as you know, I'm currently involved in, where you start saying, hey, people really don't know what really happened, you know, and it's hard because you have judges who are born and raised in Bangor, you know, and their minds have been, if you will, poisoned from early on how to think about native possessions or native dispossession. And there's a certain way of thinking, an ideology, if you will, that makes them see the world in a certain way and they act upon it by ruling in court cases one way or another. And that's a real problem because the, the, the judiciary as well as the executives in Augusta or in Washington, they come in there with pre, predisposed mindsets about indigenous peoples that is completely 
wrong or minimally a lot wrong about it, ill-informed um, and, and not understanding really what happened. And it takes a long time, as you know, Donna, because you've been in the legislature, it's something hard to continue to try to convince people you see it wrong. This is not true. I agree with that. And, and you know, the tribes have lived that. But what I'm interested in your research, Harold, is that, you know, you, you make sense of this. And when you look at uh, like people like Henry Knox and James Bowden and these land companies, uh, and the reason that they were interested in all this land, uh, what was going on then, and, and that kind of helps people to understand the actual history of what what took place and why. So I, you know, I'm kind of interested in the land companies too, because those that those were the the actual, I don't know if you would call them tools or whatever, but they went in and they and they they created the communities and made the rules and all this other stuff. And we had a number of those land companies in, in Maine and, and you know and you know things about, about them. One of the, the fascinating things that I realized um, in um, working with your nation on um, Donna in the case of the Penobscot River case, I had not fully understood uh, the linkage between the, the so-called disputed Northeast and the status of the Penobscot Indian nation. And I later realized, uh, and hopefully one day I will publish uh, an article on it, maybe even a book, but I realized when all the early Indian agents, they were almost all, almost all were militia officers, very, very powerful. General Blake, for example, uh, general of the militia. So you get basically a well-armed, well-trained militia force in the Penobscot River on the edge of disputed territory with Great Britain, right? The British uh, North America, the, where the boundary was, that was only settled in the Webster as Burton Treaty of 1842. So in that process, between the end of the American Revolutionary War at the Treaty of Paris in um, 1783 and 1842, there's a long time span with incredibly wealthy timberlands of what is we call now Aristo County, right? And Piscataway County, that was all in dispute uh, between the United States and, and Britain. I mentioned earlier Alexander Baring, uh, who um, was the son of Sir Francis Baring, who was this big banker in London. And his son, uh, Alexander Baring, if anything, became even more powerful than his father was uh, because he uh, married the daughter of um, a, a senator from Philadelphia, from Pennsylvania, uh, William Bingham. And Bingham that gets into all that money there. Binghamton in New York is named after him. And so Bingham, extremely wealthy, very powerful. Uh, Alexander Baring marries into that family. And he is the guest of um, Henry Knox and, and, and Bingham, precisely on the moment that summer that the Penobscot Indian nation with your forefather, Joseph Orono, is forced to sign a horrible treaty of 1796. At that moment, Alexander Baring is in a schooner that was uh, chartered in Portland together with William uh, Baring, a French aristocrat, a, a, a vicant who was looking for investments in Maine, and Alexander Baring, a 21-year-old. And they're basically waiting for the treaty to be signed in uh, what's now called Bangor and Kaduskeg at, uh, at the head of the tide. So that would mean that Maine, sorry, Massachusetts at the time would get control 
over a large chunk, a chunk of parity cleared of title, Indian title, that would spike the value of the hinterland because it would get access from the hinterland to the river. The river was the major, um, major artery for traffic. And so the speculation in land that Baring got involved in on behalf of Henry Hope in Amsterdam, his employer, and his father in a partnership in London, that was an investment to buy out uh, part of William Bingham's money that had been invested in Maine in conjunction with Henry Knox. So there's this land speculative ga game going on. Well, the same um, uh, Baring, Alexander Baring, who had married this American wealthy heiress uh, gal, uh, he later was elevated uh, into a, the, the peerage in England. And that is the famous um, Lord um, uh, Ashburton. So when we hear about the uh, Webster-Ashburton Treaty of 1842 in the wake of the so-called bloodless Aroostook War of 1839, that was the same land speculator who still had at that time huge amounts of land holdings on the American side, so to speak, of the boundary that he is negotiating on behalf of England, uh, where the line shall be drawn. So, you know, you start saying it's stunning in a way how these people are playing both sides of the game, but they always walk away with the money. That's the, that's the thing. That's why these, these, they can, even during wartime, bankers, like Dutch bankers, were financing in our own war of independence they were financing the Spanish army. They were butchering the Dutch with Dutch, Dutch bankers providing weaponry. I mean, it's a, and Colin knows it. I mean, the, the British East India Company, I mean, you get dive into that kind of stuff and it gets really murky, you know? Um, so it's, 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 on the one hand, it's fascinating. On the other hand, it's depressing. And it gives you also a window one thing I like about that period, because banking at that time was still relatively easy to understand. Today, it's so complicated that, I mean, it certainly goes beyond my capacity of comprehension how international banking goes with financial derivatives and these kinds of things. I, I, it's too complicated. But the way the banks operated in the 1780s, 1790s, and in the time of the Louisiana Purchase, also financed by the same Dutch bank that was invested in Maine, it's kind of hard to believe, but the exact same guys are financing, buying out with $3 million uh, at the time. It was a staggering amount of money. They could pony up that money. It's unbelievable. Anyway, Colin, of course, is deeply involved in this stuff. So anyway, I, I, it's, it's, anyway, Colin, what do you think about this? So one of the things I'm listening to Hal talk, and it, it reminds me, um, one of the most um, probably enduring images, I think, in American popular history. And this is true whether we're talking about Maine, Ohio, or Wyoming, where I, I lived for seven years, is that American expansion is carried out by pioneer families, right? That individual God-fearing, hardworking men and women trying to carve out a new life for themselves. <clears throat> and these are the people whom Indians are pitched into war with, right? And so you get all those horror stories of, of frontier conflict, et cetera, et cetera. Well, yes, of course, that's part of the story, but clearly that's a kind of a tip of the iceberg. And in lots of cases, the people who are pitched into conflict are both victims of these larger structures and these larger processes, and their lives are 
if not dictated or certainly shaped by other people who are not even there, right? And I think that's um, combating the, the uh, endurance uh, of and the longevity of that image is even our politicians, you know, they will invoke that image for what it says about American values. And I don't dispute that, right? But there's another set of American values going on in the background uh, that's also part of the story. And I think that's what as historians we're, we're trying to do. It's not to say, you know, some people are good guys, some people are bad guys, but to understand how things came to be the way they were, whether it's in Maine, Ohio, or, or Wyoming, you need to get, uh, it's almost like peeling an onion. You need to pull back these different layers to see who all of the players are and what's what's going on. Yeah, this is the, it's what's true. And this is, um, you know, Karl Marx, um, I mentioned earlier Adam Smith, but the second perhaps um, great theorist of capitalism is Karl Marx. And it took him a staggering amount of decades, really, you know, to try to even penetrate into the realities of how that worked. It's extremely difficult to understand how capital operates and it's almost like a mysterious power to it. And it has a, there's a magic almost to it. To it. Uh, I've often thought about the shamans of capitalism are the bankers uh, because the definition of a shaman is a specialist with non-ordinary power, you know, and that non-ordinary power is also what a banker has um, in a different type of political economical system than foraging or hunting and gathering uh, as we typically associate shamanism with. But the shaman is, is able to do things sometimes in darkness, right? You have sometimes with uh, deadly results um, and people don't really know the magical hand of the shaman, right? All kinds of powers are attributed to a shaman uh, with of extraordinary power that other people don't have. But so do bankers. A, these bankers are sit there as Colin was just uh, indicating, they sit there in the chamber uh, in Amsterdam or in London or in Washington, and they move on the chessboard, they move a few pawns, and bingo, you have suddenly an entire tribe in a war that people are saying, what happened here? Well, it was suddenly a parachuting down of some submachine guns in Borneo. These people have their own grievances. Suddenly there's these weapons, there's some instructor coming down, and bingo, we have a war that happened to the Hmong, right? In the, in the, in the Vietnam War that you were in, uh, Donna. There's all kinds of stuff there. We start saying, somebody's getting rich on this. Other people are bleeding. Who are the bleeders? Who are the people who are getting rich? And sadly enough, that story is old and it's just enduring today. And people don't realize it. We just saw it with the, the Iran-Iraq war. You know, how, does, how do these people get into that mess? The, the, the games that are being played um, are just very difficult sometimes to understand. I'm now currently working on the disappearance of Michael Rockefeller on the coast of Netherlands, New Guinea, um, who, who, by the way, trained for his mission in New Guinea uh, by swimming here at uh, Vinyl Haven across Crockett Sound. Um, uh, but he, he perished there and his great mis mysterious uh, way in which he died, most likely he was killed, uh, but people didn't want to hear the story at the time because it would endanger the Dutch politics at the time the story was concocted that he drowned. Um, people on the ground knew that he hadn't drowned. Uh, he had survived and was speared and then was killed. 
And it was not a story that the Dutch wanted to have because we tried to keep the, 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 the colony at the time free from uh, Indonesia. So my point is, whichever part of history we dive into, we see the, the rot behind the wall. And we see the profiteers and we see the people who have a lot of benefit from spreading full stories or partial stories and withholding a good chunk of it, lest we know. And that's always sad uh, to see that people then out of a sense of patriotism may go to war and other people are really scheming behind and they wave the flag because people know that people are sensitive to these kind of um, uh, nationalist symbols and they die and they get amputated uh, and so on and so forth. And it's a sad story and people need to know better uh, history because history is not something from the past. History is what informs us today about how we conduct ourselves and allows us to see sometimes structures that are otherwise invisible. But by tracing the origins of certain things, we can get a glimmer of how things are in operation. And that's true for the state of Maine today in the dispute with the Penobscot nation. You really need to understand statehood. You really need to understand how the Penobscot nation was robbed of its inherent sovereignty, first through treaties, then through Indian agents, then to become wards of the government. And in the time that you grew up, Donna, you know exactly what happened. By that time, people themselves have started to believe we are nothing. Except for a number of people still say we do. You know, we know who we are and we revolt. And that's why you went into the legislature. So I, I do, I think that uh, going back to the land in this country, native land and how native land was used and we talked about how we used it communally and how we used it, uh, we didn't use it, we didn't use it as property or, or to sell or, or to uh, make a commercial entity out of it or whatever. Uh, but when, I think we talked about this too, when, when this, the United States, when the, when the uh, Europeans came over and took over the land, they saw that as property and they saw it through the eyes of capitalism and what, how they could commodify it. And that was, in my, in my way of thinking, that was when that happened and the land was taken over by the, uh, the Europeans, that's when we started going down that rabbit hole of capitalism and the uh, commodifying uh, our land. And, and, and as you say, Harold, we are, we're suffering from that today in, in, uh, you know, in a lot of ways. So in, in, in Maine does have a, a deep dark history with that. And, uh, and that's one of the things I, I plan on peeling back a layer to, to actually see how that happened. So Can I ask you a question, Donna? Sure. Um, I was kind of interested uh, because you have asked us questions and I'd like to kind of reverse the gaze, if you will. Carol, we, we, we've got like two and a half minutes, so. Yeah, so let me use that uh, by asking you, what motivated you to start this, uh, these interviews? What is precisely motivating you to ask questions about unwrapping sovereignty? Are you working for the CBS News or, or uh, MPBN or something? <laughs> um, okay. My motivation, uh, 
you know, it, it, it's taken me a long time, long, long time. Uh, my uh, decade or so in the legislature, my working for the, for, as a senior advisor to the governor uh, and on tribal council, I, I see all this stuff. And the one common thread, the one common hammer or tool or whatever that goes through all this is sovereignty and the failure of the state to recognize the sovereignty of the tribes. Um, and they use it. They use it to, to, as a barrier to keep us down. Uh, and I think that if we can understand the basics, the foundation of sovereignty, where that came from, what the, why is that used, how they're using it. Uh, and if they can understand it, there is a concept of perhaps uh, shared sovereignty and as you made the point, Harold, in the last radio show, you said, uh, what good is, is sovereignty if it's only internal and you can't use it externally? So I think that's what, that's where I'm coming from. And, and that's, you know, mm -hmm. that's where I want to go. I want to unpeel all this stuff, put it out there and have both sides look at it and kind of understand it. That's where I'm coming from. And that's why this series. All right, Harold, so you made me take up all that time. I need to, uh, to thank you guys for being on, on, this, on the show. And uh, I wanna go further uh, and, and sort of peel back some things on Maine. So I'm hoping that uh, Harold, you'll stick with me and, and, and Colin, if you wanna jump in on Maine, you're totally welcome to do that. I really like some of your, your, your take. Again, thank you for being on the, on the show. Thank um, you, Donna. Yeah. I've been listening to WERU Webinaki Windows. Uh, I'm your host, Donna Waring. We've been talking to professors Colin Gap Calloway and Harold Prince about their perspectives on uh, early colonial America and sovereignty. Thank you for joining us today. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and Joel Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows.